Open your Bibles with me, please, and turn with to 2 Peter as we continue our new summer series on this, this beautiful text. One of the great delights of reading the epistles of the New Testament, certainly of, of Paul and of Peter, is that we know these men reasonably well through the rest of the scriptures. And we have the delight of uh, informing the text that we read with the history that we hear in the Gospels and so forth. Let's give our attention to 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 7, but our text for this evening is verses 3 and 4. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Well, to accomplish anything with excellence, we need to be wonderfully well-equipped. You are setting out on a climb of Mount Everest, and you show up one day without equipment, without training, and without hired Sherpas to be your guide. The odds are not only against you, the odds are quite possibly that you'll perish quickly without equipment and training. If you're going to fight a war, you need training and you need the best of equipment or you'll be slaughtered. An athlete, a welder, a plumber, a mechanic, an x-ray tech, an engineer, a pilot, and the list goes on and on, all must be well equipped. They must have the tools. And never is that more important than for the believer who follows Jesus Christ that we must be outfitted with the best of the tools. And our passage beautifully describes the equipment the Lord has given his people to walk with him. So before we dive into verses 3 and 4, I want you to see with me the important construction of the text that underlies our English text. Verses 3 and 4 are a Greek construction where the main clause begins at the beginning of verse 5. In other words, verses 3 and 4 are leading forward to that first clause in verse 5. The phrase, for this very reason. 
Now, here's the key that we need to keep in mind. The thrust of verses 3 and 4 is, excuse me, is God's divine blessings which enable the work of earnest discipleship to which we're called in verses 5 through 7. The words make every effort in verse 5 will be fruitful because of the certainties of what God has given in verses 3 and 4. That's what we need to grasp before we begin diving in to those verses. So in our text, verses 3 and 4, Peter is setting out these foundational truths on which rest the rest of his message in 2 Peter. The logic is this, since our divine Father has given us such exhaustive and marvelous things to us, it's for this reason that we must make every effort to mature in godliness. And so this is a classic scriptural pattern that God's gracious gifts already given form the power and the joy of the commands to which we are called in obedience. In other words, we say theologically that the indicatives of God lead to the imperatives of God. And that's exactly what we have here. As we turn to the text, I want us to take what is really quite a full and packed doctrinal passage and make it very personal for us. So three truths to spur on our discipleship tonight. First, believer, you have what you need this side of heaven. You have what you need this side of heaven. Second, your life is full of promise. And third, you have taken on the likeness of God in escaping corruption. Well, first then, you have what you need this side of heaven. Now, if I could ask you, and you could do so with precision, to look back over the last week or two or even month of your Christian life and write down all of your thoughts about the last month of your life, I would venture to bet that many of us would be able to write down more of the negative things that we have thought about ourselves and others and our Christian life than the positive things. That we often focus on the things that we lack, the things that we're struggling with, the things that, as it were, that we don't have that are missing. But look at verse 3, the first part of verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Brothers and sisters, you are amply supplied by the Lord with all that he has intended for us. What do we lack? We lack nothing that God has deemed necessary for a godly life. His divine power, this, this word power here is the Greek word dunamis that you've heard spoken of often, from which we take our word dynamite. God's divine power has already gifted us with all things that lead to a godly life. All spiritual armor, all the equipment needed for a life of godly fear of the Lord has been given. I want you to think Ephesians 6 and the fullness of the armor that has been given to us. 
Now the verb here, his divine power has granted, is a perfect passive verb, meaning this, that it's already been given. It's not something that we're waiting on. It's not something that we have to plead for and ask for. These are things already bestowed by the Lord. In the finished work of Christ and in the regenerating, indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and in the deposit of the apostolic word, we have received everything that God has deemed necessary for this Christian life. That's a remarkable statement by the Apostle Peter, isn't it? And one that I would ask you to examine your own heart and ask the question, do I believe that that is actually true? And where do these provisions come from? Well, notice first, in, as we continue in verse 3, from the knowledge of God and of his Christ. Now, let me make a comment here. Scholars are rightly confused in verses 3 and 4. Whenever the word him or his is used, the words are not qualified well enough for us to know in each case exactly who is being referred to, God the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ. I would submit to you that in most cases here in the text, it is quite immaterial. It's our triune God in all of his fullness who has granted these things to us, and it is very hard to tell in either case which of the persons of the Trinity we are speaking of. But from the knowledge of God, we shall say, and of his Christ, look at verse 3b, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of of him. Now John Calvin famously opened his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Some have said one of the ten most important books ever written in the history of humankind. And when he opened that he said essentially all the knowledge that is essential to mankind is subsumed under two headings, the knowledge of God leading to the knowledge of ourselves. It's a brilliant statement that the knowledge of God, our increasingly deep knowledge of the character and works of God, is utterly essential to the Christian life. And where has God revealed that knowledge to us? In his sacred word and in his incarnate word. All that God would have us to know about him and his ways has been given. And the growing knowledge of God in our lives is ever central to the Christian life. But notice second in verse 3, from the one who called us, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God's sovereign and effectual calling is bringing us to his weighty glory and to his holy virtues. Now notice at the end of verse 3, the translation in the ESV says excellence. The word might more literally be translated virtues, which is a word, an old English word that we don't use very much, but it is a beautiful word. A virtuous woman, a virtuous man, 
is one whom we want to be and whom we want to be around and whom we want to emulate. The virtues of God. Where do these provisions come from? The deeper the knowledge of God and of His Christ that we have, the more these provisions impact our lives. And God has called us, effectually effectually calling us, and bringing us into the weight of His glory, into the weight of His virtues. The more that we understand the majesty of God and the virtues of God, the more deeply these giftings of God impact our lives. Let me put it this way. God is inexorably calling us into the fact of and the experience of his glory and his virtues. The facts of his glory and virtues and the experience of his virtues and glory. That's what God is calling us to. This is a stunning truth here for us as believers. We are well equipped in this union with God in the world. We are recipients of an endless supply of provision and growth. Now please, I want you to grasp what Peter is saying. He is not talking about the future with respect to heaven but rather a present fact for his readers in his day and for us. Eternal life is not only a state to be obtained in the future, it is our present existence. We don't tend to use the language of eternal life to think about the here and now. But that's exactly what Peter is doing using the sense of the sweeping nature of eternal life, that this is now for us. Dear Christian, you have already partaken of eternal life. You are living out the first fruits of eternal life right now, thoroughly equipped for this journey. That's awesome. And how lightly we take that for granted. In fact, let me use all of the language of verses 3 and 4 with the concept of the already and the not yet to give us a sense of of what is happening here. Peter is saying his divine power has already given us all things necessary. But you and I don't yet exercise all of those things, do we, by faith? We forget them often. We're often not giving ourselves to the fullness of the things that God has given. We have already gained great knowledge of the living God, but not the fullness that we still yet need, do we? How many of us here can say, I have learned all that I need to know of the nature and the character of God. I understand my Father Perfectly, I understand my Redeemer Jesus in all of his excellencies. I understand the work of the Holy Spirit in my life completely. Of course, none of us. We're already called into the experience of this glory of God and his virtues, but we don't yet see them fully. 
We've already been given great and precious promises of God all throughout the Scriptures. We'll come to those in a moment. Some of them are fulfilled in Christ already. Others of them are to be fulfilled when He returns again. And some of them we simply haven't even begun to explore. We've already become like our Savior, indwelt by the Lord. But we're not yet released from the presence of sin, are we? And we've already escaped the corruption of the world in its lustful desires. But we are still prone to wander and every one of us stumbles often. You see, that's the already and the not yet of the beauty of what Peter is unfolding for us. Brothers and sisters, to put it in the language of Mount Everest that I began with, we can scale the heights of this Christian life. Why? Because you have been given every piece of equipment that is necessary to summit a godly fear in this broken world. You have what you need. Our second and more brief truth to spur on your discipleship is that your life is full of promise. Now, I do not mean by your life is full of promise what many mean by that phrase. Your life is so full of promise. Live your best life now. You know who I'm referring to. No, I mean your life is full of promises, precious and very great promises from the lips of God. Promises made by someone who is trustworthy are life-giving and they're hope-sustaining and they shield us from despair. I want to take you back to Step Morgan, who most of you know, and his injury on his uh, mountain bike and was when step was found by other mountain bikers who began to call for emergency help and they stayed with him how powerful do you think were the words of both those who stayed with him and the communications from the medical personnel that we've got you it's going to be okay those promises those statements of power and effect and knowledge and wisdom and expertise and training were life-giving to Step and to Jessica in those hours. Well, Peter says that God, by His divine power and the knowledge that we have of Him and His powerful calling upon our lives, has given us these precious and great promises. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed to you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the myriad promises that God has made in his covenant of grace to his people funnel down into the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. Well, what are some of the great and precious promises? I was 
working at my desk this week, and, and I thought to myself, let me take just a couple of minutes without looking anything up and just list some of the precious promises. These are just ones that came to mind immediately. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the covenantal promise of God in the Old Testament, which Jesus has brought home in fullness. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not leave you as orphans. John 14. I will pour out my spirit on you. I came that you might have abundant life. John 10. I am the good shepherd and I will care for you. And you will not lack. Psalm 23. I thought of the Beatitudes. Go back and look at them tonight if you have opportunity. Every single one of the Beatitudes is, among other things, a glorious promise. I give you this one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What a wonderful promise. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you, John 14. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be moved. Psalm 16. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. They will not overwhelm you. The fire also. You will not be burned. For I am the Lord your God. Isaiah 43. And if we spent the rest of the evening saying, all right, let's, instead of a hymn sing, let's do a promise sing. Sing out the promises of God. I think for the next 20 minutes, we would have no problem. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> Don't look at your watches the next 20 minutes. You would be hard-pressed not to find a promise of God or a story illustrating the promises of God on every single page of the written word. But they are not only promises, but promises of the triune God who has the will and the power to bring them to pass. Well, every promise rightly understood is a feast for our soul because it finds its fulfillment in Christ who is our living bread and is our living water. And because all of the promises find their yes and amen in him, he becomes in those promises our meat, our drink, and our life. And third, we close with this. To spur on your discipleship is this remarkable statement in verse 4, where Peter says that you have taken on the likeness of God in escaping corruption. Look at verse 4, the latter part of it, the middle and latter part, that through these precious promises you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These great promises of Christ and of the Father flowing from the blessings of verse 3 have a remarkable effect on us as believers. 
Peter tells us that it's a twofold effect. That we, one, we participate in the divine nature and we are escaping the corruption of the world. Now, what does Peter's phrase, partakers of the divine nature, mean? We need to be careful. This is the only place in the New Testament this expression occurs. Notice Peter's careful language. We are partakers of God's nature, not of his being. We are not subsumed into the being of God. We do not become part of the Godhead, not at all. But we take part in the characteristic nature of God. Another way to put it, we exhibit the communicable attributes of God in this renewed life that we have been given. His holiness, His justice, His love, His kindness, His mercy, His forgiveness. We don't take on the essence or the substance of God, but we are being remade into His image, becoming like our God. We do not pass over into the essence of God, nor be swallowed up into His being. But this expression means we're conformed to His likeness in every way possible as creatures. The image of God in holiness and righteousness is restored in us. Think of it this way. The language of Paul in Romans 8.15. We are adopted into the family of God, to his divine family. Listen to Paul. You have received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. How remarkable that you are taking on this characteristic nature of God. Well, look at Peter's final phrase, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter's final phrase is explanatory of what we have just spoken of, this taking on the nature of God. We've escaped from the corruption that springs up in lustful desires. We have, by the gift of God, a crucified old man with a new heart and new affections, no longer slaves, but free to walk in righteousness in the character of God himself. That's the Christian life. And so John Calvin famously said of verse 4, Let us mark then the end of the gospel. That is, to what does the gospel lead? And he says, to render us conformable to God. And then he attaches a phrase that were it not to come from Calvin would be troubling. And he says, in a word, to deify us. Now, Calvin goes on in the very next paragraph to explain what he means, and he does not mean that we become God, but that in every way that a creature can be like God, God is restoring in us the fullness of his image. Well, let me close by doing it this way. I'm going to give you three categories, three biblical and theological categories. The already, the not yet, and the consummate. 
What is Peter doing here? Well, he's saying you already have these things. In other words, in our positional sanctification, that is, in our position in Christ, united to Christ through the power of the Spirit by faith, I stand, you stand in this moment utterly transformed in the image of God. You are in this moment as holy and like God as you will ever be in Jesus. That's the already. What's the not yet? We have already escaped corruption and partaken of the divine nature, our positional sanctification. But the not yet is our progressive sanctification. United to Christ through the power of the Spirit by faith, I walk daily in newness of life. How? Imperfectly putting on the likeness of God. My positional sanctification, the majesty of the gospel is that in this moment I will never be more pleasing to God than I am in Jesus But one day, the progressive sanctification in my life is going to come to an end. And that's where we find the consummate. We're continually escaping corruption in this life and putting on the divine nature. We're ever learning to fix our minds on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. But one day, brothers and sisters, comes the consummation. United to Christ, ultimately, body and soul in heaven, we take on the very nature of God such that we display his glory and his virtues perfectly, while yet not ceasing to be creatures. May I dare say that I believe that every one of us in this room who has been converted That is your chief desire in life, isn't it? That God finish what he began. That nothing will will remain to be done in me that is not complete. The already, the not yet, the consummate. That when the gospel of God in Christ is finally done with you, you, though still a creature, will be like God. If that does not rock your soul and float your boat, something's wrong. But I want you to hear it theologically as we close. In the garden when the serpent tempted Eve, what did he say? He said that in the day that you eat, finish it with me, you will be like God. How wicked, how evil, and how deceitful. They already were like God. Except that they were creatures and God was not. 
And Satan gave the lie that they could become not what Peter is saying, but what Peter is not saying, that you can be God. No, no. But you can become like God altogether. The gospel is the consummate restoration and surety that we will dwell in the presence of God because we will be utterly like him. And only Jesus has made that possible. Will you celebrate what is ours and what only Jesus has given? Let's pray. Father, one day, a true hour will come either in our death or in the coming of Jesus when what Peter has spoken here will have reached its, its zenith. Nothing more but the living out of our thanksgiving and our praise and our service as those holy like God. Above all, we thank you and praise you for this, the greatest gift ever to be given. We come in Jesus' name.